So Ecclesiastes 3.11 says there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Time to mourn and a time to rejoice. Kevin Bacon said there's even a time to dance. You remember that? Footloose, there's a time to dance. But there also is, according to Ecclesiastes, a time for war. There's a big movement, like I would say, there's a side of the Christian church that believes in pacifism. There's no place for the slaughter of millions in war. But God said there is a time for war because, as one uh, philosopher said, there is a peace before war that is not a good peace. And you go to war for the peace that comes after war. That's a good peace. I've been reading uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's a big book, about 1,200 pages. I'm reading it my third time, Derek, third time. I don't know why I love this book. I love it. But it's all about Adolf Hitler and his rise in Nazi Germany. And what's so irritating about this book is World War II didn't have to happen. After World War I, where millions were slaughtered, they signed this thing called the Versailles Treaty. England... France, and all these other nations, Russia, basically put stipulations on Germany. If they break the treaty, we're going to come in and take over. When Hitler entered, he started breaking the treaty. But France and England were so tired of fighting wars that they let him get away with it. And they, he would just say, hey, I don't mean anything by it, even though he's rolling through Austria and Czechoslovakia and Poland, oh, I'm a nice guy. And because they didn't want to fight the war, they let him have it. And then it ended up, 6 million Jews died and over 50 million people across the world in World War II died because, in my mind, some leaders in London and France wanted peace. But it's a false peace. It's a peace before war. And what's happening right now is I think personally there's another war coming. But it's a war from heaven. And it's setting itself up. And if we aren't preparing those who are unbelievers for it, it's going to be bad. And I believe in Deuteronomy 20 we read about how God occupies His land. Go to Deuteronomy 20. And we're going to walk through this. And I'm just going to kind of show you, in my mind, why God has the right to wage war. So we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy. And here's what it means. If you don't know what the word Deuteronomy means, I know it's a big word. It just means the second giving of the law. So you have, imagine this is like, this is the desert over here. This yellow is the Sinai Desert. And then they're looking over the Jordan River. If you ever go to that land, the Jordan River is in a valley. On one side's the desert, on the other side is the promised land. Moses has all of the nation Israel looking over the Jordan to the promised land, and he's saying, you are going to go take over the promised land. And so Book of Deuteronomy is written to prepare them to take over the land. They've been in the desert for 40 years. So he gives them the law the second time. For two reasons. Number one, if they obey the law, they will live long and prosper. They'll have a wonderful life. They'll be blessed. And we've been talking a lot about that, that the law is a good thing. 
The second reason he gave the book of Deuteronomy is to prepare them to wipe out the nations that were already there. They have two purposes. To take over the land and prosper, but to get rid of these nations that were wretched. It's God's promised land. They've been ruining it, and it's time to redeem it. So look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 20. He says, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. So he's beginning by saying, you're going to war. But don't worry, I'm going to be with you. If you look at verses 16, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance... Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So he, they got to go in and they got to wipe out these people. And then they got to occupy the land. And he says, just occupy. And so the first thing in Deuteronomy 20 is God does go to war. God will go to war. Sometimes wars are bloody and they're terrible. In this case, they had to fight these nations that they were terrified of. You see in verse 17, it says, completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites. Completely destroy them. When you see the word Amorites there, the Amorites were a scary group of people. If you remember Numbers 13, Numbers chapter 13, you can read this later. Numbers 13, 31 to 33. The spies were sent out. They went over the Jordan and they spied out the land. And they were looking at it. They came back. When they came back, they gave a good and a bad report. Here's the good report. The land is full of milk and honey. Look, we brought some grapes. And they had two guys holding a pole. And a big cluster of grapes were on that pole. And for people that have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years in the desert who've only ate, really, manna and had some water, to see a cluster of grapes, they must have said, oh, this is good. When my wife and I were in Russia for a year, we had to go to, they're called little kiosks, where we would buy bread from old grandmas or one or two rolls of toilet paper if they had it. And then we'd have to buy the apples they had, and most of the apples had little bruises on them. They weren't that good. We lived there a year. We come back home. The first store we went to was Myers. You go into Myers. They've got 20 kinds of toilet paper. They have more stuff to buy than you could ever imagine. And Michelle said, we entered the millennial kingdom. This is the promised land. So when they had the grapes, you know, and they're seeing what the spies brought back. Wow, this is a good land. But then some of the spies said, but I'm telling you, I got some bad news. What's the bad news? They're like giants. Those men, we're like grasshoppers. They're going to kill us. And Caleb said, what? Let's go. And the rest of them are like, no, Caleb, shut your mouth. They're Anakites, which are like, you know, like Goliath size. They're going to destroy us, especially the Amorites. So they got all scared and wimpy, and Ken preached about this, so they remained in the desert for 40 years because they didn't have faith. You remember that story? Ken talked a lot about it. 
So you can imagine Moses is saying, all right, it's time to go. So look at verses 1 through 4. God basically says, don't worry, I'm going to fight. Okay, I'll fight. He says, uh, verse 1, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, he'll be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. Here, Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Don't be faint-hearted or afraid. Don't panic. Don't be terrified. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. And this is always true. This is a great verse to memorize about every single day of your life. God's with you, and if he calls you to do something, he'll fight for you. Trust him. That's the whole point. Then he goes on, he goes, not only that, if you're scared, you don't need to go to battle. If you just got married, take a year off. If you just bought a house, go enjoy it. But when we go to battle, I will do the fighting. So when God goes to war, he does the fighting. Second thing that we learn here is that he will offer peace to the people he's fighting. So look at verse 10. When you march up, To attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept the offer, they become slaves and servants. But the other people he's going to, like the Hivites and Ammonites, he is going to eradicate those who are evil, which is verse 16. However, the cities and the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, don't leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Otherwise, verse 18, they will teach you to follow the detestable things. So God's going to war. He's saying, all right, we're going to go fight. If they, we're going to first send peace officers. If they accept peace, they'll become our servants. If they don't, we'll destroy them. But there is a group of people in here, they don't deserve to live. We're going to annihilate them. Oh, time out. Do you like that whistle? Some of you are sleeping. Time out. I used to do with the youth group all the time. I'd tell them, I swallowed a whistle when I was a kid. See? But time out. You mean to tell me God just gave them the right to go annihilate, like, nations? Like, this is genocide. And because of that, some people who talk about Christianity, said, your God in the Old Testament, he's a moral monster. Actually, a book came out, he's got a moral monster about 15 years ago. It's an amazing book. But it's written because there's a, there's a movement today that says, man, the Old Testament God, like here's how Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who's a famous atheist, talks about him. He says, um, I can't believe Richard Dawkins says this stuff, but he did. He says, uh, How could an all-loving God assume such immoral commands? He is arguably arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He calls Old Testament fiction. He's jealous, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So he thinks God in the Old Testament is a bully. And sometimes when we evangelize people or talk to them about Christ, they'll say, man, I don't know. I don't want your God. He's always angry. I mean, he wiped out nations. Who gives him the right to do that? Well, let's talk about that real quick. 
because I'm not defending God, the Bible does, but I think when people who say, who gives God the right to do that, don't know the Bible. The first thing is just simply this, God is the most just being who's ever lived, ever. He's holy, which means there's nothing evil or sinful or wrong about God. You can read in Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 4, it says God is good and God is just. And just means there is nothing wrong with him. And every action he gives is inherently moral. In fact, the word moral means doing what is right. Who invented morality? God. Where does morality come from? It comes from him. Whatever he says is right and true and good is right and true and good. It's funny when atheists get mad at God saying, he's evil. I'd like to ask an atheist, where do you... I thought you're an atheist. Why do you have any kind of morals? Atheism is built on there is no morals. Anyhow, second thing the scripture says about God is he's patient. He's patient. He doesn't just unload because he's just mad all of a sudden. He has warned us time and time and time and time again. Go to this scripture real quick. Romans 2, 4, and 5. And then you'll understand what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 2, 4 and 5. I told the first service, this sermon, I, I, I could talk on it for 20 hours. So Bob Ford said, all right, I'm the first one to sign up for the 20-hour sermon. I'm ready. So if you want the 20-hour sermon, we're going to have it some late night. I don't know. It'll be me and Bob Ford. Really exciting, Bob. All right, Romans 2.4. He says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's what this is saying. Here's verse 4. Let's say we have a fast-flowing river right here. Fast-flowing river, and right here's a dam. You have a big dam, like Hardy Dam. A dam is what stops water. So every time someone sins, the water comes and hits the dam. And the dam is causing that water to build up. But because he's patient, the dam is holding back the water. Every time someone sins, the water rises more and more. God doesn't forget. He's waiting for people on this side of the dam to go, Oh boy, I, don't, I deserve to have that water unloaded on me. But then there's some people over there saying, Man, I'm safe over here. And then he pulls the dam's doors open and the water comes down. That's verse 5. So he is patient so when it comes to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, did you know 500 years before this happened, he gave a prophecy to Abraham that Abraham's going to have tons of kids. They're going to be basically in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, and then after that 400 years, they're going to come and take over the land. That's 500 years before. You can read about that. Verse 16 is very interesting in Genesis 15. God says the reason why it's going to take 400 years, it's going to 
take 400 years for the sin of the Amorites to be full. He's waiting for the sin to be full. Meaning, he's waiting for them to just act and be free, and then he's had enough. What are some of the actions? You can read this later, Leviticus 18, 24-28. Actually, these are all of the sins that were being committed by the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites that said, you know what they basically were doing? They had sexual sins and then they had idolatrous sins. Sexual sins like sons were sleeping with their moms and their sisters and their aunts and their uncles were sleeping with their nieces and it's like this and they're sleeping with animals. That's what Leviticus 18 is all about. And God says in Leviticus 18, don't do what the nations around you do. They're corrupting the land. He made this beautiful land and they're just polluting it. It's kind of like if God owned an apartment complex, and all people in the apartment complex do is spray graffiti and poop on the ground. They're destroying what God made. Do you think that we have reached a point where it's built up yet in our culture of sin? It's kind of gross what's going on now. And that's really what Leviticus 18 is about. And then you read... In Judges chapter 1, so after they invaded, that's the book of Joshua. So you have Deuteronomy, Joshua they invaded. And then you have the book of Judges. And the book of Judges in chapter 1 gives a report. There's 12 tribes. They said the first tribe of Joseph did pretty good. They got rid of the people. Then each tribe, they didn't get rid of the people. And they became friends with the people. And then you have other tribes. They started becoming slaves of the Canaanites. And then some tribes became completely shut out of the promised land because they didn't obey. And then you have Nehemiah 9, 36-37, where they confess their sins years later and say, we deserved, we deserved this, God, forgive us, because we didn't kick them out of the land. This is what made my first sermon so boring. I went through all these passages. And it's a lot to read, and it's like, oh my gosh. But read them on your own. God was patient. God is still patient. So he unloaded after 500 years. How long has it been since Jesus was here the first time? Over 2,000 years? How long has it been that he's warned us he's coming back? We've had this Bible for about 2,000 years. And he's waiting. And the water's building. So he's patient. Third thing I'd say about God is he's very clear. He told them what he was going to do. He didn't act in secret, nor does he. Go to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. When they invaded Jericho, they had a lady out there that was a prostitute, and she said, we heard you coming. We knew all about the Red Sea. We knew about how you are coming with God, and we are scared to death that he's going to take over. Can you please let me be taken care of? And sure enough, they, they took care of her. But she knew. People know who God is. He's very clear. Day after day, the heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night, they pour forth speech. You have been given in your heart the law of God. You are not without excuse. And the fourth thing I'd say is God is God. He owns everything. Read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
When I read that verse, I, have you ever seen those things like on Facebook where they'll say like a rich person who owns a million dollar house went on vacation for a month and some people learned about it so they had a rave party in that house and they invited everybody on Facebook to come to the house and have a rave party. And they're destroyed the house and they steal everything. The world has been having a rave party on God's world for a long time now. He's coming back. That's the point. And he has every right to clean it up because it's his world. God is God. I was asking some rhetorical questions. Can, uh, can God ever be accused of being a murderer? Because when you call him, you know, like he's an evil, mean God. So you're saying actually he acts in a murderous way. Can God ever be accused of being a murderer? Then what happened during the flood after Genesis 6? Was that just murder across the whole world? Or did he have a right to let the flood unleash? Remember, he gave a promise. If you sin, you die. Have you ever sinned? If you've sinned, why are you still alive? Have you ever asked that? Have you, have you ever sinned once? I have. Then why am I still here? One reason. God is merciful. He's letting the water rise. It's the only reason. You could ask, if, if God's a murderer, then what are car accidents, diseases, and plagues? He should have stopped them. No, they're normal. Jesus says that's normal. It's the results of sin. If God's a murderer, what's the age when a person can die and God can no longer be held accountable? Because when babies die, he's always held accountable. At what age does he stop being held accountable? 713 that's the average age of somebody lives. So after 71.3, he's not to be held accountable. But if somebody dies at the age of 30 or 40, see, God didn't intervene. Again, the only reason we're alive is because of mercy. Here's what's interesting. Those who object the most to what God has done in the Old Testament, murdering the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, those who are most mad at his genocidal tendencies often are the first ones to celebrate abortion. Did you ever notice that? You could ask this question, why is the Holocaust, the Holdemore, and terroristic campaigns so wrong? Like, if God can wipe out countries, why can't we? Why was the Stalin purges and Hitler's concentration camps so wrong? Because we're not God! Human beings are not God. We are here on this earth at His invitation. We are His tenants. Reminds me of uh, Lord of the Rings when Gandalf and Frodo were talking about Gollum. Frodo wanted to kill Gollum because Gollum's a bad guy. And uh, Gandalf said, Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even a very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum still has some part to play for good or for ill. And what he's saying is we can't see the full picture. Quit being so quick and hasty to who you want dead or who should be alive or dead or who meets justice out. God does. This is his world. And people 
will get their due in His time. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's funny, I used to, uh, when I was first saved, I used to be a lot more sensitive to what I'd watch. And I used to hate shows about vengeance and revenge. Because I'd be like, ah. Because vengeance and revenge movies are really, they feel good. Like there's a bad guy, and go kill him, get him, kill him. You know, and it kind of feels good. And I felt really guilty about that when I'd read Romans. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not mine to determine who should die and who should be left alive. Because I too have existed behind the dam of God's mercy. And I don't deserve it. So, this leads us to the next question. Is God still going to wage war? Because here's what happened in Deuteronomy 20. They did go to war, and they did take over the land. Remember King David? He ruled everything. And then what happened? They sinned, and they were put into slavery for a long time. And then they were dispersed. But then... And around 1947 and 1948, the Jews started heading back to the promised land. The promised land is flourishing right now. If you've ever been to Israel, you wouldn't believe it. It's flourishing, right, Lyndon, Bill, right? We went there together. But the promised land is full of Jews and Gentiles. So is it over? Are we done with occupation? No, there's a new kind of occupation happening. And it's sort of done in the same way but it's done on a different battlefield. In Deuteronomy 20, the battlefield was human beings and real land. Now what's being battled is the heart. And Jesus has come to first win the heart. And he uses not swords and shields, but the gospel. The gospel is a declaration of good news. It's a declaration of good news. The gospel really isn't A life acted out. It's not being a good person. The gospel is a declaration of something happened that will change your life. So for instance, after World War I, they had what's called VE Day, Victory of Europe. And VJ Day, Victory of Japan. Do you remember that picture in Times Square when the soldier's kissing a nurse? And they had celebrations because of the news. Why is there celebration? Because something happened outside of New York There was a peace treaty signed, and now the world's set free, and all of the people in the concentration camps are set free. What did the people in the concentration camp do to be set free? Nothing. Something was done outside of them to release them. Now for you, what set you free? Something happened 2,000 years ago, and you need to know about it. A man died on a cross for you to set you free. You didn't do anything. It's the news of what he did. He went on the cross. He bore the Father's wrath. So you no longer have to stand on this side of the dam. You're pulled out. So when that dam's released, you're not even there. You've been rescued. He's been rescued. And it's the same way. He rescues us the same way. First of all, God, in the same way God went to march for Israel, the Holy Spirit is marching on this earth to win hearts. John says he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He starts tapping on your heart and he says, change. Look at Luke 14. 
This is an interesting parable. Did you ever hear of the uh, phrase, consider the costs of building a tower? Meaning, if you're going to become a Christian, consider the cost that it's not easy to follow Jesus. It takes your life. But isn't there a cost if I reject the gospel? And that's what this is about. Luke 14. Consider the cost of not accepting the gospel. Luke 14, starting in verse 31. says, suppose a king... Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming at him with 20,000? So the first part of the war is just like Deuteronomy 20. Here you are being invaded by Israel. Won't you consider whether you can defeat them or not? So Jesus is coming. Can you defeat him? Oh, I don't need to listen to him. Jesus, Jesus is a nice little lamb of God, little wimpy Jesus. Really? Really? Have you ever considered what that day is going to be like when he comes back? Honestly, sat down like a king and said, all right, I'm going to marshal my troops. What are my troops? Me and my righteousness. I'm a good guy. Those are my troops. And Jesus is going to come back with his troops, angels, and really himself. He created the world and he is righteous. Can you stand up to him? Those who are wise, like this king, look what will happen. If he is not able, verse 32, he will send out a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. So what is happening right now is God is the one offering peace through people who are believers through the gospel. That's why we are, we are his ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. I'm offering peace. The peace treaty, you don't have to go into it, but it's incredible. It's Romans 5, 1 through 5. We are offering, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And you have this land called grace. And we have the Holy Spirit who's shed abroad in our hearts. That's the peace treaty. If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while he's still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. So if you don't surrender, you're not in. You've got to face the war. But you better be careful because Jesus' kingdom has come. It first starts in the heart, and there will be a day when he comes down. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. So for those of you who are not believers, I offer you peace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King, Jesus Christ, and you will be safe, saved from wrath. That's all you got to do. If you believe, you enter his nation. You join his army. So if you are part of his army, I am now going to give you the battle plan of what's going to happen. One of the reasons why I like Derek to read Rise and Fall of Third Reich is you can get the inside scoop on Hitler's battle plan and he would have all of his generals in front of him and he'd have them named like Operation Red or he had Operation Odessa and he would say, okay, we are going to invade on this day. We're going to do this, 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 and this. It would be an inside battle plan. Nobody knew about it. But they have secret archives, so now we can know about it. That's why I like that 
so you know what his, was happening in his mind. I'm going to give you God's secret battle plan. Here it is. Are you guys ready? Write it down. If you're a Christian, this is for you. And it's called Operation Occupation. He's going to occupy this land. That's what he's going to do. He's going to take over. He's got four stages. What he's doing right now, what is going to happen very soon, I think sooner than we realize, what's going to happen when the end is coming, and then what he's, his objective is forever. He's one objective, which is going to happen forever. So what is happening now? I call it infiltration. We are being parachuted into enemy territory. We have to reclaim people who are his, but have been blinded by the enemy. And they are sucked into his world. Some people call it the matrix. They're in the matrix. Got to get them out of the matrix. And the way we do that is we are parachuted in with the gospel. Blessed is he who is walking with the shoes of peace. We give them the gospel. They believe it. Their eyes open and they realize, oh boy, I am a child of God. And then they look around like, ooh, there's a lot of people that don't get it. I once heard Jonathan Edwards say it like this. What happened... Imagine you have like a big desert and everybody's blind and they're dying of thirst. And in the middle of that desert, there's this water that's shooting out and it's like ice cold sugar water. You drink it. When you drink it, your eyes are open and you can now see and you're refreshed. But you see everybody walking around like that. Don't you want to give them some of the water? That's what we're doing now as ambassadors, giving them the water of life. So what's happening is it's working up till Romans 11.25. This is what I believe is really happening. We are doing this, we are in this time of the Gentiles until the full number of the Gentiles or Christ's bride comes in. When the last member of Christ's bride, his church, comes in, I believe the mission is done for now. And then what's going to happen, he's going to evacuate his bride out of this earth. He's going to remove them out of away from the dam. It's called the rapture. That's what 1 Thessalonians is about. And the reason why is he's going to take his bride, his beloved bride, so they don't have to suffer wrath. This is one I could go into. This, take, this would take 10 of the 20 hours to talk about this. So the evacuation is happens so then the assault can happen. What is the assault? It's when the Lamb himself fights and unloads his wrath on this earth. And it's going to be bad. That's what Revelations 4 through 18 is about. Luke 21, 22 says it's going to be a time of trouble like nobody's ever seen. And so the church is going to be out, but then the nations, just like the Amorites, who have basically built up to the rim the iniquity or the sin, he is going to unleash his dam and it's just going to start flowing. That's his battle plan. And then what's going to happen when he's done, he's going to then come with his people to occupy the world and he is going to set up his son on the throne to rule over all of the earth in a kingdom of righteousness. He's going to kind of get the scrub brushes on the 
on all of the stuff in the apartment building, disinfect it, clean it, and put his people in there so then they can run this world the right way. And those who are first are going to be last, and those who are last are going to be first. And there's going to be nothing like it. This is his occupation plan. And so just like Deuteronomy 20, to come in and take the promised land, the world's still the promised land, and he's had a lot of promises, but now he's sent the peace ambassadors, and that's you. You've got to go warn people. But here's the big question. What if you refuse the king? Have you ever considered the cost? That's what Luke 14 is about. What is the cost of refusing the king? And we don't ask this too often, but there is a cost, and it's detailed. And it's detailed in 2 Thessalonians, if you could open up there. And I want you to look at this. This is a passage. I'm, for some reason, I don't know why this doesn't excite people that much. I think because it makes, paints us as megalomaniacal, angry people. Just like Richard. Boy, I don't want to make Richard Dawkins mad at me. Golly, I don't like when atheists think I'm a mean guy. It's not because I'm mean, it's because it's, he said it. Look what it says in 2 Thessalonians. And there's a point to, uh, how do I say it? There has to be a point to how do we read the scriptures where we actually believe it. You know, <laughs> If I believe something, it should change me. Now just watch what's, watch what's written in Scripture. Just listen to it. And ask yourself, if this is true, because it is true, then what do I do? Here it begins in verse 6. starts off and it says, God is just. We talked about that. Everything He does is inherently moral. He's just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. He's writing to Christians who are exhausted. Who feel like they never win. The world's against them. And there's no hope. And especially they were being persecuted for their faith at the time of this writing. Like they really suffered for being Christians. I don't think we really suffer for being Christians. I mean really. I mean, things are, the news is against us, absolutely. But there's still relative freedom. He's writing to people and he's saying, God sees your pain. Hang in there. He's just. I'll keep reading. He'll give you relief. This will happen. What will happen? Relief. This will happen when the Lord Jesus, this is the one who died on the cross, this is the Prince of Peace, little lamby Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. Quick question, how powerful is one angel? One angel in the Old Testament could kill 100,000 people. I once heard somebody said they had a vision of an angel standing and if an angel would come in this room, there are some angels that would have to crouch down because the wall's too short, the ceiling is. I don't know if that's true. All I know, though, they can kill 100,000 people. That's pretty intimidating by itself. That's who's going to follow Jesus in, with blazing fire. 
Um, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So here you have the dam is up, the water's up, peace has been given to these people. Hey, the gospel is Jesus came. I don't care. I don't need to listen. I got plenty of time. Will you just shut up? Well, okay, it's time to open the doors, and that's what this means. He will punish those with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes. So there's a day he's going to come. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you. You. Because you believed our testimony to you. Jesus is coming to occupy. I don't know where you're at on if you think he's coming back soon or not. There's a lot of signs out there which say he's coming back soon. But when he comes back, there's no second chance. So I'm just saying that for you to say, what do you do with this? If you're a believer, you are to infiltrate your families, your jobs, your homes, your community. Look for people that are lost. Tell them. If you're not a believer, study this and ask yourself, is this true or not? And if it's not true, I, I like to say this, if this isn't true, show me something better. Show me something better than this. If you got something better, I'll listen. But this is as such truth because I know the person in this book and he's real. And his name's the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is nothing better. 